Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Madison Derbyshire from the Comment and Analysis Desk. China's 19th Party Congress ended this week with the confirmation of President Xi's position. One of Xi's differences from Mao and Deng is his belief that China should show its self-confidence. Now Tom O'Sullivan, James King, and Jamil Anderlini introduced the FT's new series on China with a discussion of how this is showing itself at home and abroad. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read podcast. Xi Jinping, China's president, has been confirmed in position at least until 2022. He surrounded himself with some of his closest political supporters in an effort to further tighten his grip on power. But many people are asking what the next five years will bring in terms of economic reform, trade and relations with the rest of the world. With that in mind, the FT is launching a series looking at how Beijing wields influence across the globe and how Mr Xi is driving its soft power initiative. Joining me to discuss this drive are Jamil Andalini, the FT's Asia editor based in Hong Kong, and James King, Emerging Markets editor. Both have spent many years working in Beijing. Jamil, James, welcome. Hi, Tom. Um, All countries use diplomacy or or what we might describe as soft power initiatives to win support across the world. Is is China doing anything differently here? I mean, Mr Xi controls the second largest economy in the world. Is he not simply doing what other powers have already done before? I think what China's doing in terms of its soft power is similar to what other countries do, and it's also very different. Uh, It's different in the sense that one of the the main soft power agencies that China has, called the United Front Work Department, is an absolutely vast Communist Party undertaking with operatives all over the world and within China. It's also a a concerted effort. Uh, There are nine bureaus within this United Front Work Department. They all work together. And it's also largely confidential. And the other aspect of China's soft power, which I think is largely different from that which is practiced uh, by big Western powers, is that China doesn't leave soft power up to the forces of attraction. It also gets tough with those that fall out of line. It criticizes and it seeks to undermine individuals and organizations both within China and abroad that it feels are showing either opposition or downright hostility to the Communist Party. James, could you offer some examples of that? Some of the main areas are fairly well known. For instance, the United Front Work Department um, is responsible for religious affairs in China, and it's also responsible for areas such as Tibet and Xinjiang, uh, two very large areas of China where minority nationalities live and which have quite vibrant uh, separatist movements against the, the Chinese state. 
In these areas, China's harder edge of its soft power is very much apparent. I mean, uh, just to give you one example, the United Front is leading the efforts to ensure that China gets the reincarnation that it wants of the 14th Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, that is, when the 82-year-old uh, Dalai Lama does uh, finally pass away. And in order to uh, to try to create that outcome, it's, you know, organized an ex a very concerted effort um, within Tibet itself. It's got a database of 1,300 living Buddhas. Um, it, it insists that all living Buddhas are recognized and confirmed by the Atheist Communist Party. A, a bit of a contradiction, but, but that's what it's aiming to do. And it says that if the Dalai Lama himself, who lives in northern India at the moment, tries to uh, find his own reincarnation or organize his own reincarnation to be found in, let's say, northern India, then this will be thoroughly unjustified. And it spends, the United Front spends a great deal of time criticizing the Dalai Lama to try to undermine whatever efforts he might make in that regard. Um, Jamil, can I just, just ask you, in terms of, um, I mean, what James was just discussing there was a, a very specific case um, in, in relation to, to, to Tibet uh, and other sort of separatist areas. But in terms of these soft power drive, how do these initiatives play out in, in, in Mr Xi's wider political ambitions in, in terms of, you know, for instance, with the 60 million Chinese who live overseas or indeed in terms of investments overseas? Well, I think um, James hits on a very important point, and it is that the Chinese state does not leave its efforts to boost its soft power up to the market or to private enterprise or even to private individuals. It's very much, the way it's very different from other countries is that it's very much a state-driven initiative. So it has this enormous department inside the Communist Party, the United Front Work Department, whose job is to make China look good. It also has thrown billions and billions of U.S. dollars into its propaganda efforts. Uh, it's set up global television networks. It's set up uh, branches of its state media all over the world. And it tries to, as Xi Jinping says, tell a good China story. So it's state-directed uh, soft power push. Now, it's somewhat paradoxical when you think about what, state power, what soft power means for a country like the United States. In the United States, uh, it's, it's sort of ability to project soft power is driven by Hollywood. It's driven by its political values. If you look at the classical definition of soft power, which was coined by Joseph Nye at Harvard in the early 90s, it's about getting other countries to do what you want, to do what you, what you would do without having to bribe or coerce them. So the idea is that uh, you don't have to invade people. You don't have to throw lots of money at them. You just, they want to do what you want them to do because you're so attractive. And there are three main ways, uh, three main elements to soft power. One is cultural, which China absolutely have, has. Many people are absolutely besotted with Chinese culture in its many, many various forms. The other two areas, though, China's not so successful and hasn't been so successful so far. One is uh, the attraction of its political system. China has a very authoritarian, uh, non-democratic political system, and until recently, it has never really tried to tell people that its system is better than any other system. It's just sort of said, it's the right one for us, it's what we've got, you know, that's, that's what, you know, but we're not trying to push it on anyone. 
That's starting to change under Xi Jinping, and that's a very interesting development. Now, the third element is foreign policy. So in the past, China has also not really attempted to uh, impose foreign policy on other countries. It's, it's said basically we, you know, will get along with us. We don't interfere. The policy of non-interference, a uh, phrase used for many decades, which was to hide China's, China wanted to hide its light and bide its time. Mm. Now that's coming to an end as well. And so what we're seeing is uh, this state-directed effort to push a, a version of China onto the rest of the world, this idea, uh, a Communist Party version of China, which Xi Jinping now says uh, other countries should learn from China. It's authoritarian market model. It's uh, market Leninism, if you like. Uh, Xi Jinping is now saying, here's a great model for everyone else. But, and that's a big difference, and but, that's a huge change. But how much of that is, is an ideological push, and how much of it is the sort of the inevitable consequence of, of a growing Chinese economy and the fact that it's, it's it, you know, as I said earlier, it's the second largest economy in the world. It's investing much more widely than it ever has done before. I mean, how much of this is, is as, as I say, I, about the ideology and how much of it is, is just about the consequence of this is what happens when you take a, play a bigger part in the world? Yeah, so I think a big thing that's going on at the moment is that uh, Xi Jinping in particular, but many people in the Chinese leadership believe honestly believe that China does have a better model than many other countries. It looks at the 2008 financial crisis. It looks at the election of Donald Trump. It looks at Brexit. And it says, hey, we don't have any of those problems. Look at us. We're so successful. We've got this wonderful model. Hey, maybe it works for you guys, too. They're not really saying uh, America should become an authoritarian communist state, but they're saying that countries, developing countries, in, say, Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, hey, look at us. We're so successful. Why don't you, why don't you do what we've done? So that's definitely what's going on. And, uh, of course, it plays into uh, China's own very hard interests when it comes to wanting to invest abroad, wanting to sell products to the rest of the world. If you are sort of saying, hey, we're just this wonderful model for everyone, uh, why don't you buy a few more roads and bridges and trains train lines, uh, that it all sort of goes hand in hand. Now, you mentioned earlier the 60 million or so uh, ethnically Chinese diaspora, the people around the world, yeah. who some of them left hundreds of years ago, some of them left in just the last five to 10 years. Um, but we, you know, the estimates are about 60 million people of Chinese ethnicity scattered all over the world, mostly in probably Asia itself, but, but all over really. Um, now, the United Front Work Department that uh, James is an uh, absolute expert on, um, they, uh, they have specifically targeted, they have one whole department of those nine departments he was talking about, one department which focuses almost entirely on overseas Chinese. So it's ethnic Chinese with a foreign nationality. Now, this is very worrying for many countries, particularly in the West, because they see the potential, at least, for... The Chinese state using a secretive arm of the Communist Party to coming in and trying to co-opt or subvert their ethnic Chinese populations, and they're significant in in many Western countries. So, for our listeners, if we're talking about this, we're talking about growing concerns. Uh, you yourself wrote quite recently about a situation in New Zealand, and um, for our listeners, I mean, where where should they be looking to see? The, the, the kind of consequences of this soft power drive because as we've as we've intimated as, as James writes in um, his, his piece on the United Front um, 
Mr Xi has been pushing this idea for some time, since he came to power in 2012, really. And this is a body that's been around since the time of Mao, but it is now seems to be much more uh, involved in the day-to-day running of, of the China idea and the China dream. So, so w- where can we see examples of this soft power playing out? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think the United Front Work Department is quite a hard version of soft power. If you take, as I said, the classical definition of soft power, the United Front Work Department tries to push Chinese soft power around the world, but it tends to sometimes slip into hard power uh, actions. And a good example is what you mentioned, a, uh, a person who was born in China uh, who spent 15 years training in the Chinese military intelligence elite institutions. He trained and then he taught at those institutions. He then misrepresented himself uh, and eventually ended up in the New Zealand parliament. He became a naturalized New Zealand citizen and he became a mem- member of parliament in the New Zealand parliament. He's been there for six years and he's just been re-elected. And he lied to get into the country on his immigration forms. He never disclosed his real military intelligence background. He said he was a humble academic, and uh, and he's gotten into the, you know, into parliament. He even served on the parliamentary select committee uh, for foreign affairs, defence, and trade for a couple of years. Now that should worry any Western government, any Western intelligence service, and and indeed Western citizens. That you have, or any citizens of any country, if you have uh, someone who is from with a background like that from the military intelligence apparatus of a illiberal authoritarian state, who has somehow managed to become a naturalised citizen and get into your parliament. Um, by the way, I went through I went through virtually every speech he ever gave in parliament, and it was relentlessly advocating on behalf of the Communist Party of China. And uh, the Chinese state, everything he said was, why don't we have closer relations with China? Why don't we have more investment? Why don't we have more integration? Now, I have to uh, point out that um, there is real potential here for xenophobia, racism, a backlash against uh, ethnic Chinese populations in Western countries and other countries uh, all over the world. Now, I would argue that this sort of United Front Work Department activity targets those populate those ethnic Chinese communities. They are the main victims of this sort of behaviour and this sort of activity. And so it is actually up to, I believe, Western governments, Western populations to help protect their compatriots who happen to be ethnically Chinese from this sort of pressure that they get put under by uh, the Chinese state. Because the Chinese state considers ethnic Chinese people, no matter what their passport, no matter how many hundreds of years they've been outside of the borders of modern China, they consider them part of the Chinese nation, yes. and they treat them as such, and they put enormous pressure on them. So uh, my argument is that we should absolutely refrain from any sort of xenophobia and racism. That's a very dangerous, slippery slope. We, what we need to do is we need to help protect our fellow citizens who just happen to be ethnically Chinese, who are coming under this enormous pressure from the United Front Work Department and the Communist Party back in China. Um, James, I mean, your your article looks at this as well and looks at the impact and looks at the, the attention to detail that's been played uh, for students uh, in Australia, in Canada, in, in other countries as well. Um, but I want to just bring it back to, to Xi Jinping for a moment and saying when, when we look at this and we look at this drive, certainly over the last five years, uh, in terms of, of, of boosting soft power, 
Um, I mean, how much does this sort of tell us about his growing confidence? We've obviously seen other elements in terms of the anti-corruption campaign that's been run, the fact that he silenced certain um, opponents and he's isolated others who may have been uh, a threat to him politically. But I mean, what what do we what does this tell us? I mean, there's one quote from your your piece um, that says, "When Xi Jinping came to power, he was totally different from previous leaders." He said, "China should have full self confidence in our culture, development road, political system, and theory." I mean, that's the the commentator there was talking about 2012. In 2017, what where do we think he's at with this particular plan to build um, this fully self confident China? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I mean, over the last five years, I'd say the big shift in terms of the way China views soft power has been from um, a a message from Beijing to the world um, that the world should be reassured that China's rise is going to be peaceful. Um, But these days, that is, although that, that message of reassurance is definitely still there, it's only one of the messages now. Um, and another, um, perhaps more important or equally important message is that China is the victim of a biased um, Western-inspired uh, narrative about China's rise. And if China is going to increase its soft power, increase its political influence in the world, it needs to address this biased narrative and to undermine it, criticise it and attack it. And that is part of the remit of the United Front Work uh, Department um, at the moment. So there is very much a qualitative shift uh, which has happened in the very recent past uh, with regard to how China intends to go about accruing political influence around the world, basically from uh, a message that was somewhat passive to something which is certainly active and possibly uh, bordering on aggressive. Again, is this this a, a sort of further factor... It, that, that, that comes from the, you know, economic development. I mean, we've seen a lot of this type of, I mean, what, what, what Beijing would describe as bias, perhaps. But we've seen a number of occasions where, for instance, uh, investments in the US and in some European countries have been turned down on, on security grounds, uh, which feeds that narrative that there's this tremendous bias. But is that, again, how much of this is ideological and how much of it is just the fact that the more that, that China expands outside of China, it, uh, investing in different countries and involved in different countries, the running of different countries, it's inevitable that these sorts of, uh, these sorts of claims uh, are going to be made. Yes. I think this question of uh, countries around the world starting to review Chinese investments, um, mergers and acquisitions uh, into their economies is becoming um, more and more pronounced. Uh, The US already has such a review board and the European Union at the moment is thinking about uh, introducing one, actually in active discussions to introduce one. China is implacably opposed to this because one of the key aspects of its economic advance is to uh, acquire technology from abroad and also acquire brands from abroad. So it's very much in China's interest to try to use its soft power to build coalitions in Europe um, and in the US to try to smooth out um, problems that its companies may have in terms of uh, acquiring the technology and the brands that they think they need. I think this is you know, one of the coming, I won't say battlegrounds, but one of the coming focuses of uh, China's soft power efforts going forward.
in terms of winning hearts and minds at home and abroad, that's surely made more difficult um, with the levels of censorship that we've seen in, in China, for, obviously for some years, but, but it, it seems to be tightening a little bit. I'm referring specifically to events at uh, the Great Hall uh, on Wednesday when the FT, along with several other organisations, The Economist, The Guardian, the BBC and The New York Times, were barred from entering the hall to see um, Xi Jinping and the other members of the Standing Committee uh, unveiled on stage. Um, do does she does Mr. Xi mind about this type of uh, you know this this type of image that is given, barring kind of international journalists from a very public event, once every five year event, and at the same time trying to sell soft power abroad? Yes, I mean, I, I of course I'm I'm not a neutral observer in this, given that I work for the FT. But um, I would I would say that this is a soft power own goal uh, by China. Um, if you, on the one hand, are trying to win hearts and, and influence people around the world, then barring journalists from what is probably the most important set piece event in China um, for five years is, uh, is, is not something which is, uh, on the face of it at least, going to achieve your aims. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of uh, what's um, been happening for several years now under Xi Jinping, which is an absolute tightening of all information flows, tightening of censorship of the Internet, crackdown on all kinds of dissidents, arresting lawyers who represent dissidents and also tightening the screws on foreign media who are with with reporters who are based inside China. That's been a very clear trend that we've seen over the last couple of years since Xi Jinping took over. And it's it's just seems to be happening more and more. You would as you say, you'd think it would be something of an own goal when you when you are rolling out your new leadership and you're trying to uh, show the world that you're confident and strong, and uh, and that you, you you know your system is something to be admired around the world. And then you're so nervous that you don't allow several of the world's largest, most important media organisations to attend that very event. It seems like a counterintuitive uh, manoeuvre. What's possibly happened is that lower level functionaries, bureaucrats who uh, have found themselves frustrated by the tone of coverage, perhaps, of certain media organizations. Maybe they have made this decision. I doubt very much that Xi Jinping himself is saying, don't let The Economist or The Financial Times turn up at, uh, at my big party. I think it's much more likely that lower-level bureaucrats who are scared of, for their jobs, scared for uh, you know, what Xi Jinping might see in some Western media organization and what the repercussions might be for them personally, they're probably the ones who've made this decision. Um, but uh, it may end up backfiring on, on some of those people, potentially. Jamil Antolini in Hong Kong, James King in London, many thanks. And many thanks to the listeners. The producer of today's podcast was Madison Derbyshire. Many thanks for your time. Bye now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.